We now are going to sit in a series on, uh, in, in a book of uh, Romans. And this is the role that this book is going, or that chapter, rather, this book is going to play in our year. If we are going to know what the mission of God is, what he has called us to do, then we first have to know what is true. Please hear this. We cannot do for and with and even through God without first knowing what it is that is true. If we get this order backwards, we are forever going to run crazy. We'll become legalists in the process, which means that we're going to place more emphasis upon what it is that we do for God rather than what it is he has already done for us. And so now we're going to embark on a nine-week series on Romans chapter 8. Now, yes, I really did try and make it eight weeks on Romans 8. I really Really try. I tried for almost a year to make this happen, all the way up until the very end. I thought we can make this, and I just couldn't figure out how to do the text justice. And so it's nine weeks on Romans 8. And this is going to serve as a bit of an intro, as well as look at the first four verses. Today, this passage is just ripe for a really wonderful illustration that I'm going to bring to us. It comes through Max Lucado, but I just don't have time to do it today. It'll actually come in the weeks uh, there. If you want to see it beforehand, get his book entitled In the Grip of Grace. And it's where he's going to share a story about some sons um, that made their way away from the father and how the oldest son, it's, it's a fantastic story. So I'm going to give that to you um, uh, in the next few weeks. Romans chapter 8. If I were to ask you to give me one phrase from Romans chapter 8, I'll bet you you could do it. You may not know it comes from Romans 8, but you will have heard this before. This is considered by so many theologians throughout the years as, quote unquote, the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, I don't know if we can carefully label a chapter in the Bible as the greatest chapter in the Bible, but I can tell you that throughout the ages, and I'm talking about over a span of about 1,200 years, consistently theologians have said, this is probably the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, what makes Romans 8 this powerful? I want to give you just a couple of quotes. Um, I decided to uh, not do the quotes that were uh, only in Latin and that you had to get from others. Um, I, I want to give you one here that's pretty recent, I think, sums it up uh, uh, very, very well about what makes this chapter so special. He says this, this wondrous chapter sets forth the gospel and plan of salvation, the life of freedom and victory, the hopelessness of the natural man and the righteousness of the born again, the indwelling of Christ and the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the body and the blessed hope of Christ's return, the working together of all things for our good, every tense of the Christian life, past, present, and future, and the glorious climactic song of triumph, no separation in time or eternity from the love of God, who, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, what makes this chapter special? Let me say it this way. Because you can find virtually everything that you need to know in this one chapter. Virtually everything that you need to know about who God is, his plan of salvation, hear me, what it is that he even desires from us and for us can be found in this chapter. Now, it's further explained in other places as well, 
But, but this chapter alone, if you only had one chapter to live on for the rest of your life, to feed on that, you're going to have a hard time choosing a different chapter from Romans chapter 8. Now, one thing to point out is this. We did a series uh, a little while ago on Hosea, and there's one of my favorite preachers uh, who is now with the Lord. It's called uh, James Montgomery Boyce, and he said that Hosea chapter 3 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. And I was reading James Montgomery Boyce in his preaching on Romans, and guess what he said about Romans chapter 8? He said it is the greatest chapter in the Bible. So evidently, one of his, the people in his church uh, said this to him and said, hey, you, you realize you've called both of these the greatest chapter in the Bible. He said, well, perhaps it is Hosea that is an illustration of Romans. It's all right here. Now, I'm only going to read these. These are going to be available to you in, uh, in another format. I believe that uh, it's available on our website. <clears throat> Excuse me. But John Piper, another one of my favorite thinkers, lists seven reasons why some consider Romans 8 to be the greatest chapter in the Bible. Number one, there is no other chapter that more deeply or fully deals with the brokenness of the physical universe and how it got that way and what will become of it. Number two, there is no chapter that expresses with more clarity or power the infallible and unbreakable linkages in our salvation from predestination to glorification. You'll see this later on in the chapter. Number three, there is no other chapter that combines the intercession of the Holy Spirit for us with the intercession of the Son for us in the service of the never-failing love of God, the Father for us. Meaning, no other chapter shows us how the Holy Spirit and Christ intervene, pray for, intercede for us as it pertains to not only just intellectually giving assent to what God's love is, but to actually embracing God's love. Number four, there is no chapter that more explicitly and repeatedly juxtaposes the necessary horrors of our suffering with the utterly assured grandeur of our glory that moves with such force through suffering to a crescendo of unshakable hope in the love of God. Number five, there is no chapter that deals more directly and tenderly with our struggle to know that we are the children of God opening to us the witness of the Holy Spirit. Man, if we were a charismatic church, I'd pause right now and say, can I get an Amen. There is no other chapter that deals more directly and tenderly with our struggle to know that we are the children of God. Number six, there is no chapter with a more sustained litany of privileges, securities, and assurances to hold us firmly in the keeping love of God. And then finally, number seven, there is no other chapter in which so many glorious truths are marshaled to help us obey only in only one implied command, live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Now notice he said it's an implied command. 
John Stott, speaking of Romans 8, which transitions us into the passage itself, says, Romans 8 is without a doubt one of the best-known, best-beloved chapters of the Bible. If in Romans 7, Paul has been preoccupied with the place of the law, in Romans 8, his preoccupation is with the work of the Spirit. In chapter 7, the law and its synonyms were mentioned some 31 times, but the Holy Spirit only once, whereas in the first 27 verses of chapter 8, he is referred to 19 times by name. Right here in Romans chapter 8, if you would stand in honor as we read just the first four verses of this great chapter. Paul says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You may be seated. Now, to try and divide this chapter up in uh, some sort of an order I found to be um, uh, quite difficult. And so I'm not exaggerating when I tell you this. Uh, while I consulted some 30 different authors from different eras of uh, the church history, um, I think I found almost as many outlines as I was reading authors. In other words, the way to divide this passage up, no one is in full agreement. There are multiple ways that we could divide this up. So I'm going to give you Four divisions of chapter 8, and I'm going to put myself right along with 7,000 other people who have tried to divide this chapter, and all of our opinions are equally valid. So, the first four verses, I think we could say we would be free from the penalty of sin. Verses 5 through 17 talks about being freedom from the power of sin. Verses 18 to 25, we are free from the presence of sin. Noticing a pattern here? Just wanted to throw you off because in verses 26 through 39, I think it is the person and the pur purpose of the Almighty God. Once again, I really tried to stick with this P and sin and all that stuff present, but I tried, I just couldn't. Because what is so dominant in this last part here is just the person of God and the purposes of God. But leading up to one of the most magnificent passages in all the Bible, he gives us the groundwork. And he starts right here in verses 1 through 4. Please hear me. Hopefully you'll hear us say this every week. Romans chapter 8 begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. Now please hear me. In all of Romans chapter 8, there is not one single direct command. There is not one single part of this that tells us what to do. It is just sitting on what is true, what it is that God has done. Would you let that sit for a moment? If this is, and if it certainly could be considered as one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible, one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible doesn't give us a single command to follow. It sits on what God has done. Now, what posture do you think God wants us to take? The emphasis from Genesis all the way through Revelation 
is on what God has done, who God is, what God is doing, what God will do. The scriptures themselves are not primarily an instruction manual for us. It is a revelation of who God is and what he has already done. Oh, Christian, how often are you basking in what it is that God has done on your behalf? Versus how much are you going over and over in your mind of what it is that you have not done or what it is that you have done that you really wish you hadn't have done? We all hate condemnation. We hate being condemned by others. We hate that finger of judgment that gets pointed. We even hate it and despise it in ourselves when we do it with others. We may enjoy it for a moment, but we leave. And it's not just a, but a couple of minutes in which we feel awful that we have condemned someone else. We all hate condemnation. I'm not talking about buildings being condemned or things like that. I'm talking about where we reach a judgment on another person and in our minds we write them off. We all hate condemnation. We hate the way that it makes those that we love feel. We hate the way that it makes us feel. And here's what Romans 8 is trying to get across to us. For those who are in Christ Jesus, God is not in the business of condemnation. And none of us naturally feel that way about him. Why? Because if I... We're, in, we're overseeing and ruling over in charge of, of people like me, there would be a whole lot of condemnation. And so we assume that God treats us the same way that we treat ourselves. Anson Dorrance is a phenomenal coach. If you were in the rest of the world, you would call him a football coach. If you're in America, we call him a soccer coach. And he talked about the differences between coaching guys who are at an elite level of, of soccer and girls who are at an elite level of soccer. And he talked about doing this because he had experience with both, uh, women that played in World Cup, men that, that played, uh, uh, I'm sorry, professionally on, on both ends. And he said something that fascinated me. This is an interview I heard probably 10-ish years ago. He said, you know what the biggest difference between coaching elite guys and elite girls is? That when I'm coaching elite guys, I am pointing out every single little thing that these guys are not doing well. And do you know why? Because most male athletes who are at an elite level know they're elite. And they believe the press. And you have a hard time teaching elite athletes that they haven't yet arrived. They have to work hard. There's flaws in their game. He said, to sum it up, guys are arrogant. He said, you know what I do in a film session with girls? I point out every single little thing that they did well. Because girls see all of their flaws. Nobody has to point out to them all the ways that they made mistakes. Coach doesn't have to come in the locker room and say, let's go over the game. Let me tell you about all. No, you need to go back because girls are doing it over and over and over in their minds about all the ways that they just failed. Most of us fall into one of these two categories, do we not? There are some of us that are in between. I know there's people that go, I don't like categories. 
just go with it for just a moment. Most of us fall into one of these two guys. We tend to lean towards one of the other. There's a group of us here in the room that tend to struggle with more of the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I'm all right. Everybody really should adjust to me. My life looks good just as it is. And if you don't like it, well then, yeah. <laughs> Others of us live... And every time we look spiritually and metaphorically speaking into the mirror, we hate what we see. And we assume that everybody else, God included, sees the exact same thing that we see. Here's what Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if we are going to understand Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, I think there are some words that we really need to make sure we have a grip on. And the first word that I think we need to have a really good grasp on, a really good grip on, is the word therefore. Now, the order in the original language, in the Greek in which Paul was writing in, I found this to be fairly interesting. The order that he wrote it in would read like this, no, therefore, now, condemnation. The first word is no. The emphasis, however, though, is on the therefore. Therefore, in some ways, is taking us all the way back to Romans chapter 1, but I think what he's looking at more specifically is what he's just discussed in chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 are a, a unit that should be viewed together in Romans. And although we could go back to some degree, um, I, I want to give you just the briefest, if I could, history of uh, the book of Romans. In chapter 1, uh, Paul says that the, the, the gospel of Christ is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. He says that the wrath of God is rightfully going to be poured out on all um, who act as if God does not have rightful ownership over all people. In chapter 2, it says that God is going to judge the moralist. He's also going to judge the hedonist because their work falls short of God's perfect standard. The Jews were boasting in the fact that they had been given the law by God, but the law actually brings condemnation to them. Trying to, to take um, some sort of pride in the fact that they were the circumcised people, what God is after is circumcision of the heart rather than just circumcision of the flesh. Chapter 3, there's going to be a final verdict from God. And he's going to be declaring the world guilty, and therefore he is justified in the punishment that he is going to bring to others. Yes, the Jews have advantages, but any man, Jew or Gentile, is justified by faith and not by the deeds of the law. Chapter 4 gives us an illustration of that being justified by faith in Abraham itself. Abraham was not justified by works. He was actually declared righteous by faith itself, it says all the way going back into the Old Testament. In chapter 5, justification is compared with condemnation, and it is seen through the lives of Adam and Christ. The first Adam blew it. The second Adam, Jesus, secured it. He did everything that was necessary in order to make people right with God. In chapter 6, there are three words, know, consider, and present. Know you're dead to sin, 
consider these things over and again, and then present the members of your body over to the Lord to be used for his rights. We can have victory over the flesh. In chapter 7, we have certainly victory over the law, but he talks about the relationship of the law to, um, of God to both the saved and the unsaved. And in one of the most misunderstood portions of the Scripture, one of the most mistaught portions of the Scripture, Paul uh, tells us in chapter 7 that he has this thing that he really, really wants to do in terms of obedience to God, but he finds that he just does not obey. And then there's things that he hates doing, he doesn't want to do, but he finds himself doing that quite naturally. And he ends the chapter by saying, who is going to rescue me from this body of death? Chapter 8 then starts out, please hear this, therefore, I have this incredible struggle. Paul is not writing chapter 7 as an unbeliever because there's a whole lot of personal uh, pronouns in there. He's saying, I, my desires, I am, etc. Paul is writing as a believer who is saying, I really want to follow God, but I find that I just don't follow him. And chapter 8 starts out in that context and saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you one of those ones who looks in the mirror like, a, like an elite female soccer player and just sees your flaws over and over and over again? The message you need to hear over and over and over again from the Holy Spirit is, there's no condemnation. If you're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. Why? Is it because God is trying to give you yet another opportunity to do it right? Is it because he knows you're really, really, really sorry for what it is that you've done? And since you're really, really sorry and want to put yourself sometimes in, in spiritual jail and punishment and you know you... No, it is because of what Christ Jesus has done. And that's irrespective of you. Now, how do you access that? By faith. You are going to jack up your life. And you're going to do it again tomorrow. And you're going to do it again next week. And you're going to have an opportunity to obey God again later on this afternoon. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to obey some of the time. And a lot of the time, you're not. And most of the time, when you're not even obeying, you're not even aware of it because the sin is so deep in our minds and hearts it's as if we are always and only sinning. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot outsend the cross. Now, if we're going to be involved in the mission of God, taking this gospel message to a world, here's what you need to be sure that you understand. Pray that God would give you, as, as Paul did um, when he wrote to the Ephesians, Pray that God would give you power together with all the saints to know how wide and how and long, uh, and long and vast is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Not that you would just be able to intellectually say, I know, David, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but that it would actually sink into the depths of your heart and says, I know that there is no condemnation. And so your prayer life would reflect the fact that you believe there's no condemnation. What does that mean? Have you ever held off from prayer because you thought you couldn't pray right away after you sinned? 
that maybe God is not going to take you seriously because you just sinned and you can't go right into his presence right after sinning. It's exactly where you need to go. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That therefore is there for the purpose of taking our mind's attention back to what it is that Christ has done. First word is therefore. The second word that I think is important for us that we need to get a good grasp on is no. This one won't take um, as long. But condemnation in this, in this uh, passage is a forensic term. And uh, in here it's going to include uh, uh, both uh, the declaration of, of condemnation, but also the execution of condemnation. In other words, it's not just that somebody has declared something as guilty, but then there's the punishment that must be given out as a result of being declared guilty. We see this in a court of law regularly, do we not? Would it be sufficient in our court of law if a mass murderer were just simply declared guilty and then set free to roam the earth as he chooses? We can declare him guilty all day long. If there is no punishment that follows up with that, then what good is that declaration? So this term that's used here is both um, uh, including the, the, the sentence or the declaration of it and also the execution of it. But, but here's what Paul is saying for us. For us as Christians, there is no condemnation. As in, when God peers down and he sees his children, when he looks at his children, he observes his children, he watches his children. It's not that he doesn't see us sin. It's not that he is, is ignorant of all the ways that we have sinned against him and against others. It's that he has no condemnation for it. He has already declared that sin guilty in the past the law sure does a good job of declaring that and, and, and harassing us. But God has already declared and God has already nailed that sin to his son for all time's sake. There is no condemnation. There's not some condemnation. There's not a little condemnation. There is no condemnation. Therefore, it's the first word. No is the second word. The third word that I think we need to be familiar with is in. For those who are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? It does not mean to have an intellectual assent to truth that Jesus is who he said he is. It is when there is a surrender of the controls over to the person of Christ. It is what I am saying. I am no longer placing my hope in my ability to observe the law, hoping that God will somehow find me satisfactory to him. But rather, it is the abandonment of control over self. I hope you hear this. It is when I throw my hands up in the air and say, God, I am yours. When I hand myself over to Christ, I am in Christ. Christ is in me. I am in Christ. It's a mystery that Paul talks about. 
For those who are in Christ Jesus, not those who are near Christ, not those who are around Christ, not those who acknowledge Christ, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. What does that mean? It means that all for all those that are not in Christ Jesus, there is still remaining all condemnation. God's wrath remains on all those who are not in Christ Jesus. This is where the mission comes in. Our job as the Christian church is not to change the world. God doesn't need our help in doing that. Our job is not to make the world a more moral place to live. Our job is not to reclaim America. Our job is not to make something uh, uh, smell and, and uh, uh, act and perform a whole lot better in this area or that area. We don't go to other parts of the world so that other parts of the world become capitalists. We go to other parts of the world because there are folks who are separated from God and his wrath and condemnation remains on them. But all those that are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for them, finally, and this is where we close uh, the sermon with just a little bit of uh, explanation. The last word we got to understand is law. Now look at verses two through four. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What is he referring to when he talks about the law? On the one hand, we could say um, that it's the Mosaic law. That certainly is a possibility in here, but I don't think that's really what he's getting at. I think he's getting at a power and an authority, a way, if you will. The law, the way it's supposed to happen, the authority, um, if you will, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. These are things that we need to know. These are things that we must believe. This is what God has done. Now we're going to see some evidence of what it is that God has done in us. There are two laws um, that are at, at nature here. This in Chapter 7 gives us this very clearly. There is the law of, of death and there is the law of life. There is the law of the spirit of life, as he says, and there's the law of sin and death. These two laws stand um, in opposition to one another. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And he did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. God does what the law cannot do. What does the law do for you on a consistent basis? When you hear... Um, uh, the, the, uh, both the Mosaic law as well as the law that's inside of you, the sin nature that's inside of you, um, um, uh, what do you typically uh, find yourself doing? The, the, the two laws. Do, do you find that you're, yourself, you, let, give a simple illustration. Let's say that you have um, an opportunity to engage in a discussion in which there's going to be opposition with your spouse. And in this discussion, you know that your spouse is going to come from this perspective. You know you're coming from this perspective. Now, what is naturally speaking going on inside of you? Is the natural thing that's going on inside of you to say, you know what, I cannot wait to affirm and uphold and just to let my spouse know how wise I think they are 
and how great of a decision I think this would be and how excited I am to submit my will to yours and just say, you know what, whatever you want to do, that's what I want to do. Does that come naturally to you? Or does what comes naturally to you is in the most loving and gentle and sweet and polite way, I want to punch you in the face. And I want you to understand that your ways are really stupid. And I have all wisdom that has been bestowed upon me by God himself. That's what comes naturally to us. Be a spouse, be it a friend, be it a child. Not that I would ever have that attitude towards a child and a decision that they would make. There is this law that's going on in, inside of me. And here's what Paul is saying. That God sent his son Jesus into the world and he sent his son to do what the law itself, the Mosaic law, to do what that law could never do. And the Mosaic law could never ever in a million years could provide for you the kind of not only restraint to not do the wrong thing, but also the, 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 the inspiration, the power to do what it is that God ultimately had in mind. Hear this. What is the ultimate law in the scriptures? Jesus says it on a couple of different occasions. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Can the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, can it provide for you the power to live out the Ten Commandments? Posting them on your wall in your house, putting them on display, putting a nice frame on them, up, does putting them up and then you memorizing them, does that give you the power to fully obey those commands? No, because there's this law of sin that is residing within me that needs to be dealt with. And what Paul says is God sent Jesus to do what we never could have done to begin with. Once we were tainted by sin, we were born into this world, we were born with this natural inclination he talks about in Romans chapter 7. And so Christ does what the law couldn't do. Christ took your sin and he nailed it to a cross and God took all of his wrath and he poured it out on his son Jesus in time and space almost a couple of thousand years ago now. And while Jesus was on the cross, every bit of your shame, every bit of your condemnation that was headed towards you, God condemned. Jesus took on all of the condemnation that you and I deserve. And then what he said is this, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. My Spirit is going to reside within you and you now are going to have the power to live out the great command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love others as yourself. Do you feel as though you are living an empowered life. This is what Romans 8 is about. If you think that you need a tad bit of help in living out of the power of God as opposed to the power of you, 
then pay attention over the next eight weeks. This is what we're trying to set the stage to do. My friend, I don't know where you are in your spiritual pilgrimage. I don't know if you wake up in the morning and you are so enthralled um, with how much it is that God loves you, has done for you, or if you spend the majority of your spiritual pilgrimage trying to figure out why it is that God is so angry with you. I don't know if you hear the Lord delighting over you as he sings, or if you are are, are feeling nothing but just the giant finger that he points as he waits for every opportunity for you to mess it up. Here's what Romans 8 says. Please hear it. There's no condemnation. If you're in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're trying to do life apart from Jesus, you're going to have a long life. It's going to be miserable. But if you want to experience what it's like to be fully embraced, the only way I know to tell you to do that is to come to Jesus. So pay attention over the next few weeks as we're going to talk about how it is that we, um, as a people, um, need to think and then live it out. Everyone hates condemnation, but Jesus offers acceptance.